Okay, so for the past several weeks, we have been following the story of Joseph through the book of Genesis, all the ups and downs of it. And when we were last together, we saw that Joseph was placed in a very important position in Egypt after he interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh concerning the future of the nation of Egypt. Specifically, he was talking about, he predicted a, a, a period of seven years of abundance, which would be followed by seven years of famine. Obviously, as the, the, the leader of the land, Pharaohs would be concerned about this and wanted a plan for how he's supposed to deal with this oncoming um, weather issue, if you will. And so what happens is Joseph had a plan for how to deal with it. Pharaoh thought he was the wisest one and the best one to be able to implement it. So Pharaoh took Joseph and placed him over everything in Egypt as a governor of all the land. He only sat second to the Pharaoh. Well, his plan worked. During this time of abundance, the Egyptians did a really good job of storing up the excess and, and during the time of famine, they were getting along fine. And if you read a little earlier in Scripture, this famine had gripped the whole world. So the neighboring people and the neighboring countries were going were gonna to be in need of this grain. And guess who some of the very people were who were in need of the grain? Joseph's family. And this is where we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 42 to see how Joseph, and now as the governor of the land, carries out some of his responsibilities and interacts with his brothers along the way. So we got a lot of material to cover. Four chapters, chapters 42 to chapters 45. We're going to start with verse 1 and verse 2. Chapter 42, here we go. When Jacob learned that there was, a, was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. So clearly this is a matter of life and death. So Jacob is about to send them, but guess what? He doesn't want to send all of them to go get the grain. He wants to hold back Benjamin. And why would he want to hold back Benjamin? Because Benjamin, remember, Jacob loved who? Rachel. Who were the two sons that Jacob and Rachel had together? Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph thinks that, uh, or Jacob thinks Joseph's dead, sold into slavery. Now Benjamin's the one that's left. So, J so Jacob's like, I'm not sending Benjamin with you guys. I'm holding him here right now. I'm not willing to risk Benjamin after what happened to Joseph. So you nine, you guys go. You guys take off and you guys go get the grain. And so they take off and they head into Egypt. And when you think about everything that's going on within Joseph's mind, right? It's been 13 years since he's been sold into slavery. And who do you think, when the boys go to Egypt, who's selling the grain? The governor of the land, Joseph. Look at chapter 42, the second part of verse 6 and 7. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. 
As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. So after everything Joseph went through, 13 years thrown in prison and betrayed, here you go, his brothers, God delivers his brothers to his feet, the very people that sent him into slavery in the first place. Now, he could have dealt in his position as ruler of Egypt. He could have dealt with these guys however he wanted to. He could have looked at them and said, you know what? Go back to Canaan. You're not getting any grain. Go back there and die. That's what you deserve after what you did to me. Or he could have went, you know what? I'm going to enslave these men and put them to use for Egypt. That's what you did to me. Turn about fair play, isn't it? Or he could have just killed them. But Joseph doesn't do that. Joseph doesn't look to exact revenge. Joseph doesn't look to get even with them. But he looked at these brothers in a, with a skeptical eye, even though he didn't get revenge, what did it say he did? He spoke harshly to them. Because he doesn't know what they're up to. He doesn't know why they're there. He had every right to be skeptical. Because they were untrustworthy after what they did to him. But we have to ask at this point, why didn't he try to get some sort of revenge? Right? He's the boss. He's in power. You did this to me. And I got to admit, if it was me, I would have had them do push-ups or something. I can let them off that easy by just speaking harshly to them. And no one would have blamed Joseph if he would have. He's had nothing but misery for pretty much 13 years. But see, Joseph wasn't focused on getting even. Joseph wasn't focused on what he thought his life was going to be. Joseph wasn't focused on making them pay for what they did. Joseph was focused on the plan that God had. We've got to ask ourselves, what is that plan that God had? Well, let's look at the big picture. If we turn to Psalm 105, verses 16 and 17. He called down a famine on the land and destroyed all their supplies of food. And he sent a man before them. Joseph sold as a slave. So you see what it says? He said, he sent down the famine. He sent Joseph to Egypt. Who's that? God did. God sent the famine. It wasn't some goofy weathered pattern that dried up everything. It wasn't Satan that sent scorching heat to dry up all the crops. It was God himself had orchestrated this whole thing. And Joseph was part of it, and he knew it. Remember the dreams that Joseph had about his brothers serving him? See, Joseph saw leadership over his brothers as part of his destiny. But we got to look at the bigger plan. We got to go back a little earlier in Genesis to see how this plan unfolds. Go to Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. And look at the promise that God made to Abraham, who was who? Joseph's great-great-grandfather. 
I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. And before Abram ever had one child, God tells him that this is going to happen through your offspring. In Genesis 15, 5, God took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. See, the blessing of a nation that's going to come through his offspring, and then God further reveals in Genesis 15, 13, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. So it's no doubt that this promise that God made to Abraham was passed down from generation to generation. From, from Abram to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph. They were passed down from generation. And Joseph knew that this family and possibly his brothers were going to be part of this plan where God was going to bless his people. And these are the same dastardly brothers that sold him into slavery. So putting his leadership gift to use, he decides to use his position to see what these brothers were up to. To see if they had learned anything about the value of family and the value of trust since the time that they sold him into slavery and were jealous of him and jealous of what his father thought of him. So in short... Joseph decided to test them. He wanted to see if these men had grown in any way. Because he knows, he has to discern, are they going to be used in God's plan? And so Joseph gives them a, a series of three tests to figure out where they stood in a relationship with each other and in a relationship with God. And the first of these tests was a test of their conscience. He wanted to know, did they even realize what they did to him? Did they show any remorse? Did they show any regret? Did they show any acknowledgement of what they did against Joseph? Because if they couldn't display that fundamental basic acknowledgement of what they did against God and against Joseph, then how in the world were they going to be part of what God's plan was for their people? So in order to test them, Joseph decides to keep one of the brothers back. Because in this exchange between Joseph and the brothers, they say, hey, we're here on good terms. We just came to buy grain. We're not here as spies. We even have a younger brother back in Canaan. And so Joseph said, great, go back to Canaan and get him. And then when you do, I'm going to keep Simeon with me. And so Joseph's figuring that if, that if they go back to Canaan and ditch Simeon, then they haven't changed at all. Their hearts are still hard and they are still the same people that sold him into slavery. But if they come back, and they keep their word and risk the favored son Benjamin in order to rescue Simeon from being held in prison, 
then maybe there was hope that reconciliation can take place between the brothers. And look how they respond to this challenge in um, chapter 42, verses 21 and 22. Now, they're sitting in front of Joseph at this point when they do this. They say to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress came upon us. Then Reuben supplied. You remember what Reuben did? When they first took Joseph, what did they do? They threw him into a cistern. And what did Reuben want to do? Reuben wanted to come back later to save him out of the cistern. cistern but, what did, but Judah sold him into slavery. So Reuben's coming back after this point and said, um, you, can't, you can't do this. We are, I didn't tell, didn't I tell you not to sin against that boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we have to give an accounting for what we did. We sinned, and now we have to give an accounting. And who's the accounting go to? It has to go to God. See, what we see here for the first time is that these brothers realize what they did to Joseph was wrong. And they feel that this circumstance that came upon them with all this Simeon and have to go back without the brother was a direct result of what they did for Joseph, right? That the penalty for their sin was finally being levied against them. That's why I'm in a position. It's funny how that works out when we sin. Somehow the consequences always come back to bite us, doesn't it? So this realization upon them the boys head back to Canaan, straddled with this guilt, this acknowledgement of what they did, knowing that they're going back to Canaan to stick another dagger in their father's heart because they are returning now without the second son because Simeon is still in Egypt. And as you can imagine, when nine out of the ten boys show up to Jacob, he becomes upset. He becomes more upset when Reuben just suggests, hey, let, all we got to do is just let us take Benjamin back to Egypt. We'll get Simeon. We'll get some grain and we'll come back. Everything will be okay. And Jacob's like, no way. Not after what happened to Joseph. And Benjamin, you think I'm going to risk Benjamin to do that? Simeon, he can stay down there. I'm keeping Benjamin. I'm not taking the chance. But guess who steps up to help convince Jacob to let them take Benjamin to go rescue Simeon? Judah. The very same Judah that sold him into slavery in the first place. Look at Genesis chapter 43, verses 8 and 9. Then Judah said to Israel, right? Because remember, Jacob's name was chained to Israel, his father. Send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I don't bring him back to you and set him here before you, 
I will bear the blame before you all of my life. So not only do we see the, the, the brothers acknowledge the guilt and acknowledge what they did wrong, but also what do we see here? We start to see a change of heart. Because what's Judah doing? Judah's thinking about someone other than himself. He's thinking about his father. And this change is happening more than just with Judah. It's actually the brothers as a whole. So Jacob relents. They let them go down from Canaan with Benjamin to Egypt. And upon, now remember, they're coming from famine. They're traveling all the way from Canaan, all the way to Egypt. They get to Joseph's place. The attendant meets them, takes them into Joseph's house, and they sit down for dinner. So we can imagine they're pretty hungry at this point. So they present as they promised. Here, Joseph, we told you we had a younger brother, Benjamin. Here he is. Joseph, in return, presents them with a test. And then how would they respond to the blatant favoritism shown to Benjamin during this dinner? Chapter 43, verses 33 and 34. The men, had been, the men had been seated before him in the order of their ages, from the firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment. When the portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. So they feasted and they drank freely. They feasted and they drank freely with him. Do you see that? Benjamin's portion was five times greater than anyone else's. Now, if you want to get my attention, I don't know about you, if you want to get my attention, serve somebody else five times what I get at dinner time. So there wasn't like, hey, I, I, I think he got an extra scoop of mashed potatoes. Uh-uh. Five times as much. Joseph wanted them to know, look, he's my favorite. Look how much I've given to him. But what don't we see in this passage? We don't see jealousy. We don't see bickering. We don't see resentment. We don't see anger. It simply says they feasted and they drank freely. The boys were passing the tests. They just accepted the fact that Benjamin was given more and was grateful, obviously, for what they had. This change of heart was taking place in them. And this is extremely important for Joseph and ultimately God because if the brothers are going to be part of this small remnant, remember we read it in Psalm 105, if the brothers are going to be part of this small remnant that's going to be down in Egypt for 400 years, they were going to be able to, they were going to have to care for one another. They were going to have to love one another. They were going to have to support one another. They can't be people fueled by jealousy and backstabbing and hatred just as they demonstrated towards Joseph. 
Well, Joseph had one last test for them. And it is, would they be willing to demonstrate the self-sacrificial love for each other that would be necessary to fulfill God's plan for his people? So sometime after dinner, Scripture doesn't tell us whether it's that same night, whether it's the next morning, or whether it's a week later. We don't have any idea. But what it says is they're gathered up, they got the grain, they got Simeon out of jail, Benjamin's still there. They're going to send them back to Canaan with all the stuff. But Joseph takes a silver cup and he places it in the bag of Benjamin. He plants it there without them knowing. He sends them on their way. The guard goes out, stops them looking for the missing cup. And obviously they find it in Benjamin's bag. And then truthfully, they deny that they took it. But ultimately, Judah accepts the responsibility that they had the cup. And he offers up to Joseph and the guard that we did it. We had the cup. And we are willing to be your slaves because of this transgression. We're willing to turn ourselves over to you. But look how Joseph tested them. Chapter 44, verse 17. In response to their offer of all being slaves to Egypt, Joseph says, far be it for me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. There it is. The ultimate test Judah and the other brothers were free to go. He'll keep Benjamin back. Judah could have took off. Joseph told him to. Jacob would never know, just like what happened to Joseph in the first place. But he didn't bite. No one would have known. They could have went about their business left him there, and just gone back. But he did not take the bait. In fact, Judah responds in an about fashion, a directly opposite way of what they did to Joseph. Look at Genesis chapter 44, verses 33 and 34. So he's talking to Joseph, Judah saying, now then please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy, right? In place of Benjamin. And let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, don't let me see the misery that would come upon my father. So instead of leaving his younger brother in the dust, Judah offers himself up. To Joseph and saying, let them go. Let Benjamin go back to my father. Hold me here. I can't stand the thought of what this would do to my father. Judah's change of heart is an expression of the self-sacrificial love. Judah is putting his father before himself. And the self-sacrificial love is the type of love 
that would be so critical for the leaders of these people. The small remnant of people that would be displaced from their homeland in Egypt. Judah and the brothers passed the test. And as a result, Joseph is overwhelmed by this transformation that has taken place right in front of his eyes. Let's look at chapter 45, the first eight verses. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard all about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified in his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve you for a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here. It was God. Can you believe it? After his life being thrown upside down, Joseph simply forgives his brothers and says, it wasn't you who sent me. It was God. You see, Joseph knew that God was in it. Joseph knew that God had a plan that a nation would be blessed through his people. So Joseph was able to look through and through all these ups and downs of his life and have a hope and have confidence that God was in this and that God was in control of his life. Because you remember some of the things that Joseph was through, right? He was sold into slavery. He was was betrayed by his brothers, torn away from his father, torn away from his brother, sold into slavery. He was betrayed by Potiphar's wife. He was thrown in jail. He was forgotten there. You can imagine the loneliness. You can imagine the broken promises. Any one of those things could have derailed Joseph. Any one of them could have taken him down. And if he would have, he would have lost sight of what God was doing in his life, what God was working out. But any one of those things, any one of those single circumstances could have completely derailed Joseph from what God had intended. But Joseph didn't let it happen. And we should keep the same perspectives through the ups and downs of our lives. Because when we focus on any one of our circumstances at any given moment, it becomes too easy to lose sight of what God is doing in our lives. Not only in that moment, but overall. 
And I know there are things in our lives that are extremely difficult. And I know that there are things in our lives that you look at it in that circumstance to say, God, I don't know how anything possibly can become good from this. When you get that cancer diagnosis, when you have a struggling marriage, when you have death in the family, abandonment, you have divorce, you have broken relationships, you have family strife. No different than the stuff going on in Joseph's life. See, many times we find ourselves in, in, in situations that we don't like, that, that things that just became different than what we had planned and hoped for. And, it, and it's difficult to see how anything good can come from it. But if like Joseph, we can focus on God's plan and we can focus on God's purpose, then it becomes much easier for us to believe what God spoke through the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that we know in all things God worked for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And when we fully believe this promise, that we no matter how bad things appear in the moment, God is always working for our good. And that we can find peace in our life, that we can find freedom in our lives because we know that God is working on our behalf. It sounds so easy, doesn't it? But why is it so hard for us to believe that God's working in every circumstance for our good? You know, I believe that our struggles with believing that promise comes from our insecurities, our doubt, and our guilt from our very own actions and our very own sin. We can convince ourselves that we're so messed up, that we're so broken, that we deserve what's happening to us now. Because I'm so sinful, I deserve what's going on in my life right now. And we lose sight of what God's doing. We focus on that, on that bad thing in our life. And we lose sight of God's promise that he's going to use that for our good. And in the burden of our sin, in the burden of our guilt, stop us dead in our tracks with our walk with Jesus. And we get trapped in these transgressions, and lose sight of God's plan in our lives. Just like Joseph's brothers. But to be the people God's created us to be, we can't let this happen. We have to learn to trust God's promise. We have to learn to be free in His grace, free in His forgiveness, so that we can forge ahead through the toughest circumstances that we face in our lives. And to do so, I believe that it is critical for us to understand the importance of forgiveness. So today, I want to close by looking at four profound truths of forgiveness that we see in the story right in front of us that will help us be able to forge through those toughest things that we face day in and day out, knowing that God is in control and God is working for our good. These are in your bulletin notes if you want to follow along. The first one is, is we are forgiven from the penalty of our sin. 
The stark truth is that we are no different than Joseph's brothers. Now, sure, maybe you didn't sell your brothers into slavery out of jealousy. But we all have our own sin that we're dealing with. Gossip, greed, envy, lust, slander, every single one of us. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans 3, 23, that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is truth. That is fact. That's who we can be. But that's not who we are because there's another part of that truth. In Romans 6, 23, for the wages of that sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, our mistakes and our sins, they do deserve death. But thanks to the grace of God, he removed the penalty of our sins. He took them from us and he placed them upon Jesus, his own son. That through his sacrifice on his cross, each and every one of our sins, each and every one of us, everything has been forgiven. All of our sins, past, present, and future. Even if you sold your brother into slavery. And it's because of this incredible sacrifice, this incredible promise of eternity in heaven that we can live in hope today amidst the worst of our circumstances. And it's in this hope that we realize the second important truth about forgiveness is that we are forgiven of the weight of the guilt. That we are forgiven of the weight of guilt of our sin. Now, we know our sin comes with consequences. And on this side of eternity, the consequences for our sin are, they're steep. They're they're broad and comes in all shapes and sizes. When you think about, and they're unpleasant, right? You lose relationships. There's embarrassment. You can end up in jail. You can lose your job. When we sin, there's certainly consequences. And they are unpleasant. But as painful as those circumstances are, I believe there's an actually more destructive consequence that holds us back from being the people that God's created us to be. And that is the burden of shame, regret, and guilt. These things stop us dead in our tracks, in our walk with God. And we see this scattered all throughout the story of Joseph and his family. You think about Jacob was paralyzed. He nearly star- let his family starve in Canaan out of, out, of rem- out, of, out of sorrow over Joseph and fear of what would happen to Benjamin. And the brothers are in a bad position because now they got, the- Simeon was stuck in prison. Joseph's down there. They don't want to tell their father. So they're stuck in this quandary. Joseph is stuck in a quandary. Oh my goodness, here they show up to me 13 years later. Are they here to harm me? Are they here to do good? Are they here to make right? What are they here for? All the players in the story are dealing with this result of sin. And this family was torn apart in flirting with destroying God's plan to use them to create a nation. And we do the exact same thing. Because we drag around the shame and guilt and regret of our past sin like a ball and chain on our ankle. 
but we shouldn't. There is forgiveness. Look at Psalm 32, 1 to 4. David writes this. He said, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I keep silent, right? When I'm not confessing, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength, my physical strength was sapped as it's the heat of summer. See, the guilt of sin weighs on us mentally, spiritually, physically, as David describes. But there's a verse 5. Then I acknowledge my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave what? The guilt of my sin. So not only is the sin forgiven, not only is the penalty forgiven, but the guilt is forgiven. And when that guilt is lifted, that heavy, heavy burden of guilt We can live, number three, in the freedom of that forgiveness. See, forgiveness brings freedom. The penalty of your sin is paid in full. God will never renegotiate your standing as a son or daughter. Nothing you can do can make him love you any less. And those fundamental truths allow us to move forward freely to be the people that God has created us to be. Romans chapter 6, verses 5 and 7, if we have been united with him like this in death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been what? Freed from sin. This freedom comes from the assurance that God is sovereign and he can use our mistakes for our good and for the good of the kingdom. Romans 8.28 And we know in all things that God works for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. And this is something that Joseph grasped. Go back to chapter 45 verses 4 and 5. Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourself for selling me here because it was to save the lives that God sent me ahead of you. See, like Joseph, we can have this assurance that God is working everything for our good and knowing that, And out of a place of gratitude that God loves us that much, gives us the power to number four, so we can forgive others. C.S. Lewis said, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. It's true, isn't it? We love the idea of forgiveness until we're actually in a situation where we need to do it. But for us believers, forgiveness has to be more than a theoretical idea. We must practice forgiveness over and over and over again. Because you know why? Forgiveness restores unity to the body of Christ. Consider what happened in this story. 
You've got the brothers. They realized what they did was wrong, right? They became convicted. They knew they were paying a penalty of it. They also recognized that not only were they suffering from this, Jacob was suffering from this. Simeon was suffering from this. Joseph was suffering from this. Their heart was in a good place. They realized what they had done. They, they were aware of the consequences of the sin. They were finally in the right place. But despite all of what was going on with them personally, things still weren't right yet. Look back at chapter 45, verses 3 and 4. Joseph said to his brother, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done, uh, come close to me. I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold to Egypt. Come close to me. You see what's going on here? It doesn't say that Joseph's brothers didn't respond. What does it say? They couldn't respond. They were petrified of what Joseph was going to do to them. They expected retaliation. They didn't expect a hug. They expected Joseph to get even. They didn't expect forgiveness. See, the beauty of forgiveness is that it sets all parties free. The offending party is, is free to, 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 to stop the feelings. I got to repay this victim over and over and over again for the things that I did to them. And as a result, they are set free to be the people that God's created them to be. The offended party also is free of the resentment and the bitterness that holds on to us. It keeps us captive and stops us because we're so focused on our hurt and the, and the anger associated with somebody else did for us. We can't even move forward to serve God because we're focused on what that person did to us. And forgiveness sets the offended party free as well. And we see in this story that this family is reunited again because Joseph lets them go back to get Jacob, Jacob to come back to Egypt. The family is united through this, through this forgiveness so that then they can be the people that God had called them to Egypt to be so God's can, plan can be fulfilled. So just as this family's been united, our family need be united through forgiveness. We need to demonstrate the grace of forgiveness for the body of Christ to play our part in God's plan of bringing salvation to his people. I have, I'm going to call out Kirk here in the South Hills and Ted in Wilkinsburg and Andrew in Washington and Alan in Robinson. And I asked these guys all to close with this song about forgiveness. This is key to what we deal with in our lives. For us to be free to move forward and be the people God's called us to be, we have to grasp the importance of forgiveness. Both on receiving side from God for removing the guilt and shame of our past, but also on the sending side, forgiving those who has trespassed against us. Listen to the lyrics of this song. Forgiveness, right? It flies in the face of all your pride. 
It moves away the mad inside. It's always anger's own worst enemy. It'll clear the bitterness away. It can even set a prisoner free. There's no end to what its power can do. The prisoner that it really frees is you.